welcome to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Graham Smith from the Department of Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're broadcasting from Hallwood Studios in Melbourne and the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science in Canberra. We're on air thanks to the Australian Centre on China in the World. In the past few weeks, China's completely reversed its position on the existence of re-education camps in the northwestern province of Xinjiang. Beijing's gone from complete denial of their existence to a full-throated defence of them as vocational training centres. In this, the third episode in our series on Xinjiang, we'll be asking why. We're joined by two guests who have decades of experience in studying and observing Xinjiang. Nuri Turkel is one of the highest-profile Uyghurs outside of China. He's a lawyer in Washington, D.C., and the co-founder of the Uyghur Human Rights Project. James Leibold is an associate professor at La Trobe University in Melbourne, specialising in the politics of ethnicity, and in particular, Tibet and Xinjiang. Welcome to the show. Thank you. In a 15-minute segment on China's state broadcaster, Viewers saw Uyghurs inside re-education centres learning Mandarin Chinese. The detainees were shown reading texts on how to be a good citizen. They were also shown expressing their thanks to the state, as well as scenes of Uyghurs dancing in traditional dress and baking truly enormous quantities of naan bread. In this clip, a woman says if she hadn't studied, maybe she would have gone down the path of criminality with religious extremists. She says the party and government noticed her just in time and saved her, and she's extremely grateful to them. This report emphasizes the humane management and care of detainees and underlines the idea that they've been given useful vocational training, for example, hairdressing for the women, carpentry for the men, that will improve their employment prospects. Some say they're being paid for their work and are sending money to their families outside of the camps. Nuri, why do you think the government has made this U-turn on the existence of the camps? There are a couple of reasons that the government all of a sudden uh, decided to uh, not only admit the existence of those uh, 21st century Nazi-style concentration camps, but also wanted to show to the world uh, by uh, by legitimizing, normalizing their brutal behaviors. When you look at those videos uh, that they've been uh, broadcasting for their propaganda purposes, you can say that um, the language is directly addressing the Western criticism, uh, criticism made by uh, especially the U.S. government and European Union and the uh, uh, some of the uh, thought leaders. It's directly responding to it. So this is no more than uh, a window dressing and a showcase effort by the Chinese government to normalize uh, their brutal behaviors that we've seen in the last 20 months. What's really struck me about the coverage, not just on CCTV, but also on the in the Global Times and elsewhere, is this kind of narrative that seems to be that uh, the, these re-education camps are turning people into economically productive citizens. Um, Jim, I'm wondering whether you agree with Noe that this is aimed 
at addressing Western criticism or do you see this more as a sort of narrative that is really aimed at a, a domestic Han audience? I think it's a bit of both. I, mean, I certainly agree with Neri that uh, this is a direct response to international criticism for over a year. China has been in denial uh, or has denied publicly that they exist. So this is a, an about face. I, th I also think it's a response to concerns about China's uh, forthcoming universal periodic review at the uh, UN Human Rights Council. But I also think it fits a wider pattern of the way uh, the Chinese Communist Party has approached its restive ethnic minorities. It's tried to use both a carrot and a stick. And certainly the coercive elements of re-education is the stick at play. But at the same time, I do think uh, there are attempts to use training, use fiscal handouts, as well as uh, preferential treatment as a way to transform uh, the weaker population uh, through bringing them into uh, economic productivity. Well, I think I think the starting point is that most Han view uh, the Uyghurs uh, at best as uh, petty thieves, at worst now as uh, fanatical terrorists. Um, you know, I, I I think they're very supportive of the Chinese government uh, uh, hard-handed approach uh, towards the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, and probably do believe that what is required is a bit of tough love. Um, but at the same time, I'm not sure that, that uh, the, the recent propaganda videos are principally directed I internally. I think they're, they're more for international consumption. Nuri, you're a lawyer and you also have the unusual distinction of being born in detention in the 1970s. Now, the camps we're seeing these days look dangerously close to re-education through labour camps, which started in the 50s and were abolished in 2013 after being declared incompatible with China's commitment to the rule of law. Some moves have been made to justify the establishment of these camps, but do you think they convene China's own laws? The Chinese constitution and criminal procedure requires uh, the arrest and detention to go through a normal legal process, even though much of the uh, Chinese uh, laws uh, with respect to uh, political prisoners are, are not been really uh, respected in, uh, in, or practiced in a proper manner. But uh, the Chinese government has been initially did um, one of the reasons that the Chinese government denied the existence of the uh, uh, the concentration camps or internment camps uh, were based on two reasons in my mind. One is they do know that they're not even following their own counterterrorism laws, let alone the constitution and the criminal procedure. And then also they wanted to look uh, into the future if this goes out of hand. If somebody's been accused of committing uh, crimes against humanity in the International Court of Justice, they wanted to avoid uh, uh, by making it too obvious uh, to international critics or legal scholars or the uh, jurists to look into. So um, uh, initially, people didn't really focus on the legality of the uh, Chinese policies and their behaviors after being criticized for uh, mass detention, uh, total surveillance, they start coming out and try to legalize. So some of the Western media use the term legalize their uh, re-education camps. Uh, in of itself is a problematic uh, terminology to use. From the reports that we have seen and some of the things that have leaked out um, from people who have managed to 
be released, we hear these accounts of camp inmates being forced to sing communist songs before being fed. Um, There's a clip on social media of Uyghurs having to sing without the Communist Party, there is no new China. I mean, Nuri, for you, having been born in a labour camp when your mother was detained and having campaigned for all these years um, for Uyghur rights, to see all this footage, knowing that not only are the camps not disappeared, but they appear to have multiplied. A recent report by AFP counted 181 re-education camps, including some big enough to hold tens, if not hundreds of thousands of inmates. It is inconceivable. I never thought in my wildest imagination that I would be talking about something we thought was a history. Whatever the Chinese government calls it, I was born in captivity. And I I grew up hearing about the brutality that my uh, young mother uh, and intellectual father experienced uh, during those years. Uh, We have to call it what it is. This is uh, a Chinese government's attempt to achieve their uh, China dream, uh, global ambition. And also they wanted to forcibly assimilate Uyghurs under the racism concept. Uh, The Chinese government and including people of China have not really come to the realization that Uh, Their version of cultural preference, their language, their way of life is not something universal. They're not supposed to believe that this is something called a civilization uh, advocacy project or some uh, Chinese uh, homestay cadre uh, recently called it as the uh, promoting civilized thinking and conducts. Is that really what it is? Uh, Are you trying to portray or they tell the world that your way of life is, is, is considered a civilized life and, and your conduct is considered civilized conduct. So this is very coded language that people need to pay attention. The, the recent piece by Darren, uh, Darren Byron in, uh, in Seattle uh, tells a very compelling story, one million out, one million in. So the Chinese government is, is conducting this, uh, this brutal policies in two fronts. One, locking people up. And then by this intrusive method to even turn the family members against us. Against us. So it's, it's, a, it's inconceivable. I, I can't think of a better word to describe the level of brutality that, that, the, that my fellow Uyghurs are suffering uh, or experiencing. Uh, I like to believe I'm an optimist, but I don't think that the Chinese government will, will change its behavior anytime soon. And not only the people will, uh, will suffer inside those camps, but the people, the, those Uyghurs who are, are on the outside of the camp have been broken. It's going to take years and generations to fix that uh, fearfulness that the government created in their lives, in their soul, in their mindset. So this, this is a, a, a truly a nightmare situation for my people in the homeland. Jim, while this is shocking and the scale of it has us all baffled, um, you argue that the ideology and the methods are things we've seen before, um, specifically that thought reform is a, a foundational aspect of the Chinese Communist Party's culture, um, from the anti-landlord campaign through the Cultural Revolution to the recent crackdown on Falun Gong. Do these methods of thought reform actually work? Yeah, well, that's a great question, Graham. Um, you know, there, there's quite a bit of research that looks at uh, the psychology and cognitive science of influence. 
And it does show that uh, making people uh, repeatedly perform behavior such as saluting a flag or declaring allegiance to the party can actually change attitudes and lead to self-reinforcing habits. If we look at the research on the uh, re-education through labor camps, we see that people through either self-delusion uh, or desperation often uh, responded initially quite, uh, uh, quite positively for the uh, attempt to, to kind of remold themselves. Yet what we also know from looking again at that, that literature uh, is that these institutions tend to perpetuate coercive and self-corrupting practices that really in the end sow the seeds of their own destruction. Over time, they encourage really extremist behavior, uh, rent-seeking, corrupt practices, psychological destruction, and ultimately unleash a kind of a, a cycle of ideological totalism that generates fear, anger, and mistrust. And, you know, when pushed to uh, the extreme, the, any potential therapeutic value that the party might see in thought control or re-education ultimately proves uh, dangerously uh, elusive. And, and so one could imagine if um, people are allowed out of these re-education camps that they will leave uh, uh, with uh, a great deal of anger towards the Chinese Communist Party but also Han society more broadly. Uh, what they do with that anger is an interesting question. Of course, um, as Neri pointed out, Xinjiang today is uh, one of the most sophisticated surveillance societies that we've seen in human history. And so even if people are released, uh, there certainly will be monitored quite closely. But ultimately what it does is it erodes um, social trust in the social ability, the, the very social fabric of a society. And, and you know, there, there's already deep mistrust that exists between uh, members of the Han community and members of the Uyghur community, distrust with the government, even distrust, uh, as Nuri is pointing out, this really toxic, corrosive uh, breaking of the social bonds of the Uyghur community itself. You know, so it turns... You know, husbands on wives, um, sisters on brothers, you know, relatives overseas with relatives back in Xinjiang. I mean, it's incredibly destructive to the Uyghur community in particular, but also Xinjiang society more broadly. And I would suggest that this is also kind of symbolic in some regards of, uh, of the, uh, the erosion of social trust in Chinese society more broadly. Um, and you mentioned in there the psychology of totalism, which was from Robert Lifton's study of the 1950s of people who were brainwashed very early in the communist regime. And one of his conclusions was that thought reform doesn't work on people with strong core beliefs, particularly strong religious beliefs. And given this campaign is meant to target religious extremism, what are they doing with the religious leaders, um, given these techniques won't work on them? Are, are they using stronger methods? Religion exists uh, in Xinjiang now uh, simply as a museum piece. I mean, they've long had a very systematic process of uh, training and then accrediting uh, religious leaders. I mean, part of their concern was the, the existence of underground religious training in the early 2000s, but they've completely eradicated that. And uh, now, you know, if you go to mosques in, in Xinjiang, they're, they're, they're largely vacant. You know, they're there as a kind of window dressing uh, to back up the constitutional right to practice one's uh, religion. But the reality is it's, uh, it's been eradicated. It's seen as really as an existential threat to the party. Uh, Xi Jinping himself has called for the sinification of uh, foreign religions, but others close to him have called for the promotion of secularism throughout Xinjiang society and throughout China uh, more broadly. Nui, you... Um mentioned this uh, move to send Han civilians 
into Uyghur homes. I think you said one million out, one million in. <clears throat> and we, we have seen some examples of that on state-run television. Uh, in the clip, she says that the family she was visiting had made great improvements. And with the help of the party's poverty alleviation, her relatives would soon leave poverty behind and achieve prosperity. I mean, from what you are hearing, Nuri, how how common is this? How many, you know, what kind of stories do you hear about the role that these uh, hand civilians play? Are they basically government spies? They are, I would call it, political police. They have uh, very specific uh, objectives in mind. This current policy, current practice is, is so inhumane that they not only come into brainwash and turn family members against each other, they also monitor their behaviors for a potential candidate for, ca- uh, for those camps. They're also sleeping in the previously reported incidents in the same bed as some elderly Uyghur men and women. How intrusive that is. How, how offensive this, that is. And they call this a homestay. They call the, um, uh, call the Uyghurs as relatives, big sisters and brothers. It is such a naked intrusion of uh, someone's private life. They've been doing this at the village level because people are relatively um, uninformed and fearful of the government. But uh, we've been hearing stories in major cities like Rimche and Kashgar and Gulja that some of the um, uh, widows, uh, single mothers, being asked to consider marrying or building a family with uh, Han Chinese individuals either living there or coming from the other parts of the China. Uh, with this practice, I think it's clear they wanted to break uh, the Uyghur family lineage, family roots, and break their connections, their affections, and break their uh, origin. This kind of behavior eventually will fuel the resentment against the Chinese government. Here we have a government they wanted to change centuries-old ethno-national heritage, religious practices, language, way of life. Uh, They may be able to change by this kind of homestay, uh, orphanage, giving Uyghur kids to adoption, forcing Uyghur women to marry Chinese men uh, to the extent, but uh, this is going to create a generational problem that, that, that both Uyghurs and Chinese people have to deal with in the future. Jim, I believe that you've recently been looking at some, doing some research on this whole idea of Han citizens being sent to Uyghur villages. I mean, how how do you understand it? Is it a kind of inversion of the cultural revolution practice of sending intellectuals to the countryside to learn, um, but with a, with an ethnic twist? We certainly haven't seen this type of uh, mobilization since the cultural revolution. The campaign itself started back in 2014, and it was a response to the nationwide uh, counterterrorism uh, campaign, but it was an attempt to dispatch mid-level cutters and, and work teams initially 200,000 members over three years, to embed them in local villages. Uh, Officially, it's known as visit the people, benefit the people, and bring together the people's hearts. 
but really it is a form of surveillance. Uh, people are brought down to visit individual families and to find out about their livelihood, to interview them, uh, whether they have relatives abroad, whether they go to mosque, uh, whether they have a passport, and all this information is eventually filtered back into uh, a centralized database and is used to, to sort people into different categories of whether they're safe, unsafe, you know, somewhere in the middle. And those that are identified as being unsafe are then subjected to uh, this uh, transformation through education process originally in a very targeted one-on-one -on -one approach, but uh, as we know, beginning in early 2017 uh, through these concentrated camps uh, where people were kind of pretty much indiscriminately rounded up. And so you, you have where originally it was a targeted approach where there might have been some basis, maybe someone was, did have an element of religiosity in their, in their background, to really the indiscriminate rounding up of people where, you know, something as simple as, um, you know, refusing to smoke in public or uh, greeting uh, someone in Uyghur or collecting uh, uh, weight training equipment without a uh, specific reason. This could result in you being uh, rounded up and put in one of these uh, re-education camps. So, so it's, you know, it's, a, it's a very personal, direct form of surveillance. I mean, so much of the media coverage on Xinjiang is really focused on this high-tech forms of surveillance, face recognition, iris recognition. And certainly the Chinese government is putting a tremendous amount of uh, uh, resource into high-tech uh, surveillance. But really, at present, surveillance is far more face-to-face -face and far more insidious, as uh, Nuri was pointing out. You know, with their homes being directly invaded by Han Cotters, their beds, their, their tables. And it's weird because the shock troops of this initially were government cadres and party members, but this one million um, strong people are basically civilians who often have very limited understanding of Uyghur culture and are going there with lists of things as absurd as, you know, do you have boxing gloves or have you got too much food in the house that suggests you're stocking up for something? Um, I mean, how can this work as an instrument of identifying people? It seems you would just have so many false positives. Yeah, well, first of all, Graham, I think, just to correct you, I think they are public servants. So the way the program works, it's through... Uh, the state coercing uh, donways or state institutions to, uh, you know, essentially give them a village and say, okay, you're going to you're going to transform that village, and you decide uh, which one of your employees are going to go down there. Um, and uh, often people are, you know, coerced into doing it, saying uh, you won't get promoted unless you do it, or if you do do it, you will get promoted. Uh, and yeah, I mean, the, it's very crude, the method being used. And clearly, there, there, there must be a kind of quota system involved that when they decided to move towards this concentrated uh, re-education approach, they just said to local officials, okay, you've got a quota of 10% of the uh, adult uh, Uyghur population, and you, know, you determine what 10% that is. And you, you can imagine the kind of corrupt processes that would be involved if you know, someone had uh, gone on the wrong uh, side of a, a party official, well, uh, they're going to end up in re-education camp or their, their children might be sent to orphanage. Uh, well, Jim just mentioned the orphanages, um, and we have seen these very alarming reports of Uyghur children being sent away to orphanages and boarding schools far from Xinjiang. Um, there's even been some footage that emerged on social media. We have a clip um, 
of a little five-year-old being asked whether he loves China. That is quite heartbreaking. That's been doing the rounds on social media. Nui, can you tell us, do we have any idea how many kids are in these kind of schools and how widespread this practice is? It is very difficult to ascertain a reasonable number because the China does not allow independent observers, even um, reporters to go on the ground to uh, see actual uh, situation. But based on the uh, the personal accounts, uh, testimonies being provided by those Uyghurs outside of outside of China uh, through Facebook and other methods, uh, numbers of uh, kids of those parent less par- uh, kids are quite substantial. And what the Chinese government is doing with these kids, um, two two ways they're handling them: one, sending them to schools, uh, their own brainwashing schools. And also various personal accounts and reports indicate that they're also giving them uh, for adoption. Actually, this is the announcement. It says that its goal of raising institutionalization rate for orphans from 24% in 2017 to 100% by 2020. So they're going to they're gonna, they're institutionalize the kids that they have uh, under their control. Do we even know how they categorize orphans? I I think there's some some real definitional problems here of uh, what we're talking about. Uh, The Chinese state says they're offering free kindergarten care to all uh, people in southern Xinjiang. So in some cases, we might be talking about educational institutions. Clearly, there are orphanages for people who don't have anyone to look after them. Uh, There's also been a campaign to set up schools, uh, primary schools in uh, key point cities and people have to board at these schools. And so, I mean, I I, I think one way to kind of look at it is is kind of a larger educational uh, project going on here to sweep up Uyghurs at all ages, whether they be you know, toddlers to pretty much into into the 50s. I think they're not so worried about older Uyghurs in the 60s who kind of uh, grew up under the Cultural Revolution. They tend to be more sympathetic to the party. But there was concern that in the 1980s and 90s, the party kind of looked the other way and uh, there, there wasn't uh, patriotic education, there wasn't bilingual education, and now it's decided uh, to launch a kind of full-out effort to to educate and to transform Uyghurs at all all ages of the spectrum. Previously, you mentioned the kind of the museum uh, effect, and in your writings, you talk about the this rather Orwellian-sounding Department of Standardization, which attempts to standardize um, Uyghur ethnicity and culture. For example, by designating um, Uyghur costumes such as the um, the Atlas dress and these sorts of things. Do the moves we're seeing now spell an end to that kind of policy and a move to complete sinicization of the Uyghurs? Well, I think that process will continue. I mean, but it's an attempt by the party state to redefine what it means to be Uyghur and Uyghur culture. And and often this is done in collaboration with Uyghur scholars, so it's not simply being imposed on the Uyghurs. But it's um, but it's certainly a party state project, and it's an attempt to you know, sanitize uh, Uyghur culture, to to secularize it, uh, to modernize it. Uh, And of course, you need to keep a few uh, traditional elements uh, for the museum, but um, they are not uh, the the veil, rather they are the dopa. 
They're not, you know, uh, long uh, abeya type uh, dresses, but rather this atlas uh, colorful skirt. So it's a, it's you know it's a, an attempt to 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 re uh, re engineer what it means to be Uyghur and 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 to 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 museumify uh, Uyghur culture. And this you know this is a longstanding practice uh, that the Chinese have done this to other ethnic groups. But they were particularly alarmed when um, starting in 2010 2012 uh, when women uh, Uyghur women started to adorn themselves. Uh, in the hijab and other forms of uh, cosmopolitan Islamic uh, attire that they believed was uh, alien but also uh, a manifestation of uh, religious extremism. And so there was an attempt, a very systematic campaign known as uh, Project Beauty to try to eliminate these forms uh, of attire and to, to modernize uh, the, the attire of Uyghur women. Nuri, we've um, seen the governor of Xinjiang, Shorat Zakir, talk about these policies and indicate that this is likely to be a kind of years-long campaign. As all this evidence emerges through the media reporting and through um, the Chinese state propaganda, do you think the mood is changing in the outside world? I mean, what's notable is how little support there's been for Uyghurs from countries, even Muslim countries. I think Malaysia is the only country that's really spoken out and said Uyghurs have done nothing wrong. Do you see anything that uh, seems likely to change that? As a Uyghur American, as a Uyghur um, individual, I never thought uh, in my lifetime that I will see the level of media scrutiny that we have seen. So the media coverage has been so expensive, and that has uh, yielded some good result in a public discourse. We have seen uh, Vice President Mike Pence uh, using very strong language in his uh, major foreign policy speech, uh, stating that these camps are deliberate attempt by Beijing to strangle Uyghur culture and stamp out the Muslim, Muslim faith. So there's some governmental interest and there's some uh, deliberation, serious deliberation and the momentum that the U.S. Congress is building up. Uh, the EU, European Union, Union has spoken out. The only country that has not been really taken a position, uh, uh, perhaps with a sizable Uyghur uh, population, uh, I, would, I would say Canada and Australia. But the challenges that uh, we Uyghurs facing is not the Western democracies at this point. Uh, but the Muslim countries, except for Enver Ibrahim of Malaysia, uh, the others have been relatively quiet. Pakistani uh, government official made a statement and, and, and uh, kind of walked back. Uh, the Turkey has been extremely silent on this matter. Uh, this has to be a coalition uh, uh, effort. Otherwise, the Chinese will not take the world's concern, the civilized world's concern seriously. I think the naming shaming campaign should continue. The Chinese government still cares about how they've been portrayed in international uh, uh, communities around the world. It is simply mind-boggling that the Islamic communities around the world uh, that have uh, have been silent when their religion is being labeled as mental disease. So I think that we, we people are canaries in the cold mine. The world needs to pay attention to the suffering because if, if this is let go, the Chinese government's practices will be expanded into the other parts of China and also those weaker uh, developing countries that are depending on Chinese money, uh, Chinese investment, 
that may end up following Chinese government's practices dealing with political resentment domestically. I mean, I, I agree with Nuri that um, I think it's really important to sort of name and shame and I'm encouraged the fact that human rights has reemerged as a, an important issue in the way the outside world engages with China. I've been long critical of this uh, closed-door approach to human rights issue. But at the same time, I'm a bit more sanguine than uh, maybe Nuri is uh, about the prospects of change for, for two reasons. One, uh, the Chinese have been working uh, long and hard at the UN and other uh, international institutions to put forward an alternative view of what human rights is. And they've certainly gotten traction in the uh, in the developing world. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, during the uh, universal periodic review of China. But also, I think we, we must admit that there's um, a great deal of irony that it's the United States and the US Congress that's leading the way uh, on the Uyghur issue. This is a country that, you know, uh, constantly... Uh, has a kind of phobic response to immigrants on its southern border that has identified people coming from Muslim countries as potential terrorists. And while uh, Rubio and Smith might be quite genuine in their concern for the Uyghur people, I'm not really convinced uh, that uh, this is an issue more broadly that uh, the American people uh, feel strongly about. Um, what it has emerged as is a kind of wedge issue in deteriorating Sino-American relations. Essentially, it's a cudgel, a convenient cudgel, sadly, for uh, American politicians to uh, club China over the head of. And, and what I uh, feel really strongly about is that, you know, these are real people. These are real lives that are being affected, uh, not only in Xinjiang, but uh, as Nuri was speaking about Uyghur people in the, in the diasporic community. And, and it's because of the, the, the really corrosive uh, approach that China's adopted and, and the real human effect it's having that we need to speak out. Uh, you know, we have a moral obligation, I think, here to speak out uh, and to denounce that. One thing that definitely seems to be making a lot of money is the domestic security industry in Xinjiang, uh, which was estimated to generate $8.5 billion last year, uh, making it the most lucrative industry um, outside the oil sector and possibly tin tomatoes. Um, can a genie that big ever be put back in the bottle? Um, or if you look at it another way, once this security apparatus, this nearly $10 billion security apparatus is done with the Uyghurs, who's it going to target next? I think this the next target will be, I believe, the other troubled regions in China. I think they would, they would start with, uh, with Tibet. Uh, the policies uh, that the Chinese government implemented in Tibet and East Turkestan that Uyghurs call their homeland um, have been a, a testing ground or laboratory for one another. Uh, the state surveillance uh, was successful under the leadership of Chen when he was running the show in Tibet, was put in practice in, uh, in Xinjiang later on in East Turkestan. So, so they had, even the way that they built rail, railroads, implemented bilingual education, have been kind of a, used as a testing ground and implemented in another region. I'm also I'm also fearful and worried that uh, the current practices will be expanded into the other parts of China. So the Chinese people will be, should be very mindful uh, that they will be, end up living in Orwellian society eventually. The technology aspect of uh, the Chinese government's brutality, uh, I think, has some uh, gained some traction in the United States. Uh, the big uh, companies, uh, uh, including ZTE, 
Hikvision, Dahua, and Thermo Fisher, who that assisted the Chinese government's uh, state uh, security apparatus, have been under the hot water. Uh, ZTE even paid some uh, price for it, not specifically, but for this issue. But the Hikvision, uh, the um, uh, Massachusetts-based uh, Thermo Fisher have been criticized publicly by uh, the U.S. Congress. And I believe that the U.S. Commerce Department has looked into their behaviors. But they tried to justify, if you don't sell these equipments to the Chinese, they will buy it someone else. That is not true. They, when you deal with the Chinese uh, uh, government, you should know that who is the end user of your technology transfer. Uh, this is a moral issue. Uh, the Foreign Policy magazine uh, recently listed 48 behaviors that will get a weaker individual into trouble. And most of it has something to do with the state surveillance. End up going to the wrong countries in the past. Uh, communications that they detected through uh, social apps like WeChat. All of it, technology is supposed to make the people's life better. But technology, unfortunately, helped the Chinese to create this nightmare situation for the Uyghur people and others in, uh, in the Uyghur's homeland. From a personal perspective, as one of the highest profile Uyghurs overseas, what do you think? Do you believe that Uyghur culture can survive this massive existential threat? That's an excellent question. That is a one important um, issue or the concern keeping uh, most Uyghurs and the free societies awake at night. Domestically, um, I don't think that the Uyghur culture will survive the current policy being promoted by some uh, racist Chinese officials uh, that um, ended up being accepted by Xi Jinping's China and being implemented. Uh, the uh, future for the Uyghur culture in China looks uh, pretty grim. Oftentimes, people focus much on the, the action, uh, but you should also look at the intention. The actions are pretty clear, and that reflects Chinese government's intentions. They just don't like the Uyghur culture. The Uyghur culture to the Chinese government, uh, Uyghur's way of life, Uyghur's uh, spirituality, uh, have been perceived as a future political threat to the uh, Communist Party. This has been, I think, in the Chinese government's uh, thinking, uh, I can say this with certainty based on my observation and study of Chinese politics, that they finally come to a realization that this needs to be destroyed. This people need to be uh, forced to assimilate. If anyone refuses, they will end up being in the jail or will be taken away or taken down. So the, 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 the words that they've been using, this chemical, uh, spraying chemicals to clear out the weeds, um, likening Uyghur ideology as a tumor, it clearly indicates that they're really eyeing on the Uyghur's ethno-national identity. But um, the outside Uyghurs, I believe, will adhere to Uyghur cultural heritage even more on the face of this uh, existential threat that we're all feeling. Um, you know, we used to um, watch, uh, go on to YouTube, uh, those of us who live overseas. I've never been back to to the homeland since I left 23 plus years ago uh, to see the Uyghur performance, uh, performances, dances, singing, people with a colorful outfit. I haven't seen a new one uh, almost a year now. 
what does it tell me? What does it tell you? Uh, it clearly that the Chinese government uh, has been either taken away those uh, Uyghur uh, artists, performers, and put them behind bars so that their colleagues are not courageous enough to even fulfill their professional obligation. And when you look at the policies, we talked about this home intrusion, homestay, they are attacking exact existence of that Uyghur cultural fabric. The distrust, the Uyghur people growing up and living together, tight-knit society. This is not only stays in the family uh, structure, but it's in a communal sense. The Uyghur people use we more so than I, and even in daily communication. So, so the Chinese government's a purpose of destroying this proud culture uh, that even uh, studied by the Turkish kids as part of their cultural heritage prior to the Ottoman Empire history is in the verge of being destructed uh, because the Chinese government did not like the way that it looks uh, today and it does not like the way that it looks in the future. Thanks for joining us. Yes, thank you so much for your time, Nuri. Appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and visit our Facebook page to find out more about Nuri and James's work. And a special thanks to James for being our first repeat guest. Our editing is by Andy Hazel, Louisa Lim, and Gavin Neighbor. Background research is by Julia Bergen. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins. And our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danter. Bye for now.